Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Black Plaque podcast. I'm Dr. Jack, founder of Nubian Jack, the community trust that creates plaques, memorials, statues, and other products to make black history known in Britain. As part of our Black Plaque project, we've put up 30 plaques in London to celebrate the stories of black historical figures. In this original podcast series, I'll be speaking to black men and women who are inspiring, creative, aspiring, and influential individuals as we discuss their chosen historical figures and who they feel should be part of the Black Plaque Project. He preserved her skeleton, he pickled right. her brain, but her labia was what right. he kept and he kept it in a jar and it was on show in Paris, um, Museum of Man, but yeah. it was only in 2002, even after like Nelson Mandela asked him to return her body parts in 1994, when France actually agreed. For more info on our community trust, visit newbeandjack.org. For more on the Black Plaque Project, visit blackplaqueproject.com. In this episode, I'll be talking to Kelechi Okafor, actress, director, podcaster, and public speaker. We will discuss her chosen figure for the Black Plaque Project, South African, Sarah Bartman. I started out by asking Kelechi about her life growing up in Peckham and seeing the changes the area has gone through. Being a Black Londoner also means to me gentrification. You know, I remember growing up in Peckham in the 90s and no one really wanting to go to Peckham. Everyone, you know, talking about it being this kind of gangland. And, you know, I, I remember going to performing arts school early 2000s and people saying, oh, you're from Peckham. Doesn't that place smell like fish? And yeah. now all of a sudden, Everyone wants to live in Peckham. Peckham is trendy. Peckham is, you know, popping. Everyone wants to be there. So it's interesting the money that's now put into the areas that people didn't want to live in before because more white middle class people want to live in these areas. And how do we um, preserve the, the kind of vibrance that was there before all of these endless kind of cafes and coffee shops started coming in? Like, how do we preserve that? Um, how do we have more of a community focused um kind of narrative so yeah I would say that that's what London means to me and uh, growing up in Peckham would have been the time of uh, you know the Damalela Taylor um, uh, issues do Mm. you think it's a better Peckham now how would you compare it to when you were growing up yeah, I wouldn't say it's a better Peckham because what does a it's a better Peckham for the um, the white middle class people who want to live there because obviously the white work, working class were living in Peckham as well. Mm. For more of the white middle class who want to live there, for them it's a better Peckham. They want to feel safer in the neighbourhoods that they go into and kind of, in my opinion, colonise. I remember the Damalola Taylor uh, killing and how yeah, yeah. that refracted my childhood because yeah. I you know, it was so heartbreaking. This was a 10 year old Nigerian boy, me being Nigerian, me being, you know, young at the time as well. And just, um, but, you know, older than he was, but just thinking to myself, the kind of dark cloud that was cast over Peckham when that happened, because, you know, he was just walking home from school and his mum being similar to my mum would have, you know, been out doing her numerous jobs only to find out that her son was gone. 
and mm. you know remembering also Stephen Lawrence and Eltham it just seemed like South London for black yeah. boys just yeah. wasn't didn't feel safe and yeah. now that everything looks shiny and you know we've got all of these franchises popping up all in and around Peckham I still remember the places that were there before yeah. all of these new places kind of came along so it's better for certain people I don't think it's better for the people who have my experience so before we go on to your specialist subject which is Sarah Bartman I want you to tell us about what does this project mean to you the Black Plaque Moving Jack project what does it mean to you for me, it's about representation. It's about um, having physical kind of documentation that we existed as black people and the contributions that we've made to society that's often overlooked or erased shouldn't be. It's about celebration, not just limiting ourselves to a month, but being able to be celebrated throughout the year, throughout eternity really like we we should be able to see our faces throughout the centuries and what we've what we've put forward and uh, you know I think of women young women like for instance Olive Morris and knowing that for instance Sarah Bartman and, and different black women came before who yeah. have had an impact a massive impact on history and how we are viewed in the present day yet we don't hear enough about them very well said very well said so let's uh, look at this person in question Sarah Bartman herself a young woman tell us a little about her Sarah Bartman has been of interest to me for as long as I can remember, but primarily when I started teaching pole dance, when I started teaching twerk, knowing about her became something that held more urgency because when we look at the modern day and we look at the discourse that black women have around desirability and um, autonomy over their bodies and the way that the black female body is presented in mainstream culture, we see that it's denigrated, we see that it's vilified, right? And then when it's people of a lighter hue, whether they're lighter skinned black, but usually when they are um, specifically white and they yeah. take on these features, it's something that then is celebrated in the way that it's not celebrated of black women. Art forms that are originate from black women, that in, um, originate from indigenous um, African Caribbean cultures, uh, isn't profitable when we're doing it. It's only profitable when it's taken on um, yeah, through a white lens. Right. In fact, I would use the word fetishized more than vilified, to be fair. Um, and you're right, Sarah Barton was definitely fetishized because of her, she had a condition. Uh, tell us a little bit about the condition so people know physically how Sarah Bartman looked. In regards to her condition that she had, which meant she had a lot of body fat kind of accumulated around her hips and her like her buttocks. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, so it made it, more, it protruded more and it was just, yeah. you know, it was very, very noticeable. And yeah. around that time as well, it was something that was really kind of, again, like you say, fetishized in European yeah. culture, the silhouette of the uh, large buttocks, small waist, large buttocks. So, yeah, she became an object of I, just just immense kind of scrutiny, I'd say. I would even go further than that. I think she was abused. So she arrives in this country in uh, 1810. She mm -hmm. arrives in uh, November, actually, in Piccadilly. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened and, and why she was brought over here? She was brought over to England from her family because mm -hmm. the, I, the idea was that she was going to have work here and then, Indeed. you know, she was going to have this, you know, brilliant life and she'd be, you know she'd be celebrated in some forms but it seems like she was just paraded around different establishments and taken to like different private parties and things like that for yeah. people to gawp at her yeah. shape and touch her shape and like touch yeah. her body and just yeah. yeah more of a spectacle 
to provide a little bit more context for those listening, she was born in South Africa uh, mm -hmm. to the Kukwe people. And uh, she was promised, obviously, at the time, South Africa was uh, dominated by Europeans, particularly the English uh, and the Dutch. And uh, her mother died very early and her father got murdered. And of course, she was short of money. And she met a Dutch person who promised her, uh, in fact, it was a Scottish person, a Dutch person introduced her to a certain Mr. Dunlop. Mm -hmm. um, who promised her work in, in the UK and she would be, as you rightly said, be paraded because of her physicality. Is there any comparisons? Would you say there's any comparisons today or European people's obsession with black women's bodies? Are we complicit in some of that to some of our video dances, for instance? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's, um, it's an interesting um, question. The obsession's never stopped. The black woman's body has been the template, I feel, for a lot of the, I wouldn't even just say template, the site for um, a lot of the things that we see playing out in um, society in this day and age. When we look at, for instance, the speculum that was invented by James Marion Sims, um, a white slave owner, for him to invent the speculum that's inserted into the vagina to um, expand it so you can do internal examinations, right. he tested that out on enslaved African women and often without anesthesia. So the pain that they would have felt literally for these modern day innovations we know that Henrietta Lacks, her cells were used um, without the consent of her family and even without her knowledge in order yes. to come up with vaccines that have helped to get rid of so um, many, uh, you know, diseases or to control and cure so many diseases. And, you know, her family contested that. So we find that the black woman's body has been a site of colonization for centuries. Yes. It's been a site of this kind of obsessive um, I'd say insanity that people have when it comes to um, the, the black woman's body. So we cut to this day and age now when we are looking at people getting surgeries and things like that to emulate the same figure. The one that comes to my mind straight away is Kim Kardashian, for instance, making wow. an entire career out of... Accentuating her backside. Uh, yeah, accentuating her backside, but not just that, the lips, the lips that we were told in school. Um, and I remember, you know, being in school and saying, oh, look at you, bubble lips and things like that. And white girls, yeah. for instance, making fun of the full of my lips but they're right. going to get the same ratios now in, you know with lip fillers so yeah. these things that were made uh, to me made out to me to be undesirable when it was on yeah. my dark uh, skin body is yeah. something that is desirable now and in fact not just desire desirable but profitable when it comes mm -hmm. to whiteness it's a template that tends to be used all the time as you said but let's get back to Sarah so Sarah's body she goes to Paris what happens is there's a case over here where she seems as if she's being abused because she signs a contract and she's not getting paid properly this case makes her a quasi celeb she goes to, to Paris and because of her physical body she begins to uh, influence fashion and the corset and the accentuation of the backside by European women as you've just rightly said it's uh, been appropriated tell us a little bit about that from when Sarah agreed that, you know, that she would be observed by scientists and painted by artists and things like that, the, the fashion grew. And we know that Paris was has been the hub of, you know, fashion and yeah. art for, for a long time. So the... I guess the excitement around her grew. Again, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, she wasn't really getting any um, remuneration for this. Right. That was fair, mm -hmm. but you know, mm -hmm. that, that became everybody's focus around her. And eventually when she then, I guess, died at yes. a very young age, was it 26? 27, um, yeah, 26, 27, yeah. One of the scientists at Suvier decided to kind of take 
and make a part plaster of her body, part of her body what, and hey, then what, what part he, he took a part of her body what i mean do you do, what her mean, labia the, so he, he not only did he he preserved her skeleton he pickled right. her brain but her labia um wow. fleshy part um, of her uh, pelvis her genitals was what right. he kept and he kept it in a jar and it was on show in paris um museum of man uh, for disgustingly for a really long time i think until 1974 but yeah. it was only in 2002, even after like Nelson Mandela asked him to return her body parts in 1994, right. it was yeah. only in March 2002 when France actually agreed. There was some thread of science that they were trying to say Sarah was the missing link between. <laughs> it's funny now when you think about mm. it. Missing link between humans. Are you familiar with that excuse to dissect her? after she died? Yes, it's an excuse that's been constantly used when it comes to the black body. Uh, we know that from Systema Nature uh, that was written in, what is it, 1735 by Carolus Linnaeus. I refer to it when I do my anti-racism workshops. Yeah. Usually he wrote this body of text and he talked about the Homo Europaeus and the Homo Afer. And, yeah. you know, the Homo Europaeus being the white person, being, you know, wonderful, tranquil, intelligent, everything, and the Homo Afer being animalistic and, yeah. and primitive and lacking of intelligence and more akin to the apes, right? And yeah. so white supremacy decided that this was through the form of eugenicist yes. beliefs. Right. Yes. And, you know, through eugenics, deciding that this is how we'll do science. This is how we're going to create pseudoscience and say that black people and apes, they're one. And so mm -hmm. we know that Sarah Bartman was roughly, we're guessing, born around 1789. So yes. 1789, he wrote this in 1735. They would have right. been using this excuse for a really, really long right. time. Well, of course, when you appropriate a people's land and their money and all the rest of it, even their history, you have to have, find a way of reducing them to justify that strategy. I'm so glad you brought to us Sarah Bartman. I hope the people are better aware of her. So you are one of the panellists on this uh, project as well, on this Black Plaque project. Um, tell us what that means to you. Are there any other dance examples we could... Because, I mean, Sarah's not a dance example, but... Mm. Um, you know, the connection what I'm, I, I'm making, the use mm -hmm. of our, you know, how we use, we can use to express our body. Sarah is such a very good example for us to bring a story um, to people who are unknown, but it is a tragic story, mm. not, you know, but we have to face uh, and uh, wider society also has to have a look at uh, and deal with some of its past. Do you think um, society's coming to grips of our sensuality, sexuality, spirituality? personality do you think especially in britain in light of the you know black lives matter movement and other initiatives do you think those barriers are being broken down I don't know if they've been they're being broken down, but I feel like they're certainly being permeated and perforated bit by bit. I would say that like it's it's a slow process because mm -hmm. in there is so much power in sensuality, there is so much power within our black history uh, mm -hmm. that for us to have full recognition of that would mean that certain systems and institutions will have to fall inevitably. They would have right. to in order yeah. for this to be fully realized. And I just yeah. think that from what we've seen a lot of people aren't ready for that art is often used to tell um a lot of unpalatable things in a more creative way so people can actually absorb uh, the message as opposed to be being on a soapbox so yeah I, I as a responsibility uh do you feel you have a responsibility to spread the message and and help us become a more diverse society through your creativity 
definitely I think that that's my calling I think that that's my duty uh, I use humor because you know I do a lot of social commentary and some of my videos have gone you know viral from doing said social commentary but it's because I think that I try to focus on channeling the message that I think is a timeless one that is one that um that comes from spirit and transmute that into um an accessible form that others can take on you know some sometimes it's just a lot to hear someone like harping on about you or making something really really academic but I tend to swear quite a lot I've managed to <laughs> not throughout this but you know I, I swear quite a lot and I use a, you know a lot of colloquialisms but for me that is my um, duty to take yeah. the message to um, people who otherwise think that the message is not for them that they aren't powerful that they aren't part of the revolution that they can't impact change um, and show everybody that the power that created all of this is within us all you've touched on your social commentary which i've been quite familiar with some of your podcasts they're very very influential um <laughs> <laughs> tell the audience about some of the subjects that you've covered in the past so uh, recently i did um uh kind of a satirical take on a makeup tutorial to address the inconsistencies and the mishandling uh, that the government of the government you know dealing with the pandemic wow. and and that did really really well and yeah. another one of my videos that people have um really enjoyed is when i questioned whether violence is you know truly the answer because we're mm -hmm. always told um by government um officials that violence isn't the answer, you know, and I have yeah, to yeah. ask myself, well, if we look at history and we look at how the empire came to be and continues yeah. to wield power the world yeah. over, it's exactly through violence. So how is it that the oppressor can continue to utilize violence as a form of control, but we're told never to retaliate in a violent manner? I've seen, I, can I say, I've seen yeah. that one. Are you walking along this? Is it oh, along the yeah. south bank? That's phenomenal. That's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. I really did. In fact, I watched it a few times because I thought I'm going to use that line. It was absolutely very, very funny. But you also use it in a cultural context as well to explain your heritage and sometimes the generational gap between us and our parents. You want mm -hmm. to elaborate a little bit about that as well? Yes, because I think that you know, it frustrates me when people say, I am not my ancestors, I'm not this, I'm not that, almost as if our ancestors are, are or were passive. The fact yeah, that we exactly. exist is because they fought, but they fought in a different way. They had to take on a different strategy in order to survive and for us to be here. So then it comes a point where we have to kind of take that baton and look at how we kind of update that strategy for the world that we've now found ourselves in. We've got social media, which means that that's allowed for globalization but it's also allowed for a global sisterhood a global brotherhood of blackness and for us to mobilize in a way that we weren't able to mobilize when we were kind of dispersed across right. the diaspora yeah. so i try to take in all of these aspects and there are cultural references that we all know funnily enough and magically enough there are references that we all know no matter where we live you know i described it a particular way and somebody you know in america said oh do you mean this and we're still the same sentiment that if you mm. do this to me expect for me to do this back in return Correct. and Absolutely. i just think that that's magical and i think that that's so powerful tell us how to get into how someone can go about getting into acting or podcasting or directing so what wow. route would you advise them to take I think that uh, when it comes to acting specifically, I would say before kind of delving into doing lots of um, 
things and you know going to classes and things like that I would say just take be very focused on what you enjoy what do you enjoy watching what do you enjoy seeing I believe that for someone to be a true leader to be a true um practitioner at anything they must always remain a student so I'm forever a student for all of the things that I enjoy so I go to theater uh, to the theater a lot and it doesn't have to be expensive somewhere like the Young Vic they do community focused like payment kind of structures you can get subsidized or concession rates to go forward especially if you're you know a student you can get cheaper tickets and stuff. I love to go to the theatre because I love to learn. I love to watch somebody else do the thing that I enjoy. And that goes for directing too. You get yeah. to, when you go to watch, you realise what you like. And at the same time, you realise what you don't like. And you have to then interrogate what, what are the dynamics? What are the factors that made you go which way? And from then, you, I think you gravitate more towards the things that you want to do more of. And you just have to start small. Even if you can get, if it's to do with acting or directing, if you can start communicating with people, following people who act already and um, smaller community groups, get involved with monologue competitions. There are loads of them. Doing things like that just to build your confidence and just to build your knowledge. Then if you want to take classes, you can do that as well. Podcasting, I had to start a podcast because just like the life of Sarah Bartman, that we're discussing now, it's important for us to have a hand in how our history and how our lives are told hereafter. Or And I remember writing a thread about Muhammad Ali on Twitter. This was soon after Muhammad Ali passed away. Yeah. And I wrote this thread because I was watching everyone's, primarily white people, they kept saying, oh, Muhammad Ali was so great. He transcended race. He transcended race. And that phrase kept bothering me because I was just like, what do you mean transcended race? Wow. Firstly, you can only say all of this now because you feel like because of death, death has pacified him. Yeah. So you can decide how you want to tell his story. Same, Same with like Nelson Malcolm Mandela. X. Yeah, exactly. Malcolm X and mm. Martin Luther King. You choose exactly. how these stories are yeah. told. And mm. why does he need to transcend race? Why does he has, have to go beyond blackness for you yeah. to understand his excellence? And so I wrote this whole thread. I said, he was such a threat to people when he was alive Muhammad Ali that you had to create a whole fictional character in Rocky to be able to <laughs> add a counter narrative yeah. and, and have that kind of strongly kind of impinged in the white consciousness that this was the greatest when actually no the greatest is the, was a black man yeah. and I wrote this thread and I went back to look for it one day and it had disappeared wow. so I realized in that moment that I need another way to digitally kind of document my thoughts and feelings and my perspective about certain things. So that's when I committed myself to starting the podcast. You don't need much, you know, today we're recording. I've got my um, laptop and I've got a Yeti mic. I've just got a small microphone. Just get something, start somewhere and you'll learn as you go along. I have a confession to make. Mm -hmm. So today's my daughter's 18th birthday today. Mm -hmm. And uh, when she was younger, she wanted to get into dancing. Mm. And I took her to, a, I forgot the name of the school now, the one in Acton. And we did a tour and we came out, my, my missus and I, and we came mm. out and we said to her, and we were West Indian, you know, Caribbean, uh, African Caribbean background. We said to her, you are not going to that school. You are going to, and we got her into a private school and all the rest of it. My mm. question to you is someone of African background, how did your parents, how did you square with your parents that you wanted to be a dancer? Because I know education is, you know, someone's going to be the doctor, someone's going to be the accountant, <laughs> as they usually say. How did you have that conversation with your parents? I've always been um, a very, 
I would say some would call it headstrong. When um, I was in secondary school, even from year seven, I was already getting parts in place that the, my peers weren't getting. Year eight, I was the leader, my fair lady. Like I always, I've always known that acting yeah. is my calling, performing, whether it's through dance or acting. It's that's my calling. I feel most comfortable when I'm on the stage. So I knew that. And then when it came to finishing secondary school, it was time to choose a college. And I saw everyone on their UCAS sort of like choosing four or five colleges that they wanted to go to. And I only mm. put Brit School, Brit uh, School of <laughs> Performing Arts in Croydon. Yeah. That's the only thing I put down. And when my mum saw it, she was incensed. She was like, <laughs> you better. Yeah, she was like, you better go and put a... You're not going there now. Not... <laughs> She's like, go and add more. I was like, I'm not adding more. I'm not adding a single thing. And I didn't wow. add another school because as far as I was concerned, mm. I was only going to Brit school. So I didn't need to add anything else. But when it got to university was when she put her foot down. She was like, you're not going to big old university to go mm. and study just acting. Correct. So I said, how about if I find a school that lets me, find a university that lets me study acting with law? Right. I don't think it existed. <laughs> I don't think it existed. So I was just like, mm, mm, mm. went on to UCAS. I was like, la, 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 la. Only to find that Liverpool Hope University did oh, a bachelor's combined degree in uh, drama and theatre studies with law. So I went oh, to Liverpool amazing. to study that. So just to summarise, uh, Kalechi, tell us why we need to know more about Sarah Bartman. We need to know about Sarah Bartman because... Our voices, the, the black woman's voice, as Malcolm X said, like the black woman is the least protected in all of society. And at the same time, it's a weird space that black women exist in where they are hyper visible when it's time to take from them, but at the same time erased all at the same time. And, and that's why I think that we need to celebrate Sarah Bartman because she is, I guess, a quintessential example of the dynamic that has played out for numerous black women throughout the centuries that we have been displaced. So many black women have been displaced, like she was taken from South Africa and she was yeah. brought over to Europe and then she died in Europe. And then her body over how hundred years later was then yeah brought back to her people we need to celebrate her because we all need to find our way back home and that doesn't necessarily have to be a physical home i think it's more of a spiritual home a centeredness mm -hmm. within our blackness within our black womanhood um, that understanding that our body is ours we are ours before we are ever anybody else's honoring ourselves in the way that our female ancestors weren't able to honor themselves because of the societies that they found themselves in. We have to be the ones to kind of break those generational cycles by celebrating what they went through and choosing to have a better life for ourselves and those who come after us. So with, with regards to memorializing black women on plaques, that's another thing we're in, in the invisible spaces. I'm not sure if you know the actual statistics, but for, there are only seven plaques to black women in London at the moment, mm. blue plaques that is, and there are only two statues to uh, black women. Why do you think that is? And what should we do to counteract that? And why would you think this project is important to try and counterbalance that? I think it's important to for us to counterbalance this kind of narrative or the erasure of um, black women in terms of having plaques and things, because we are constantly assaulted by plaques of and um, monuments of um, slave owners of of you know of people who have been very very oppressive throughout history, and we need to have a counter narrative for that to celebrate those who have endured, those who have remained resilient, those who have contributed immensely in terms of black women um, to society. I know that 
um, due to the fall of roads in South Africa, for instance, Sarah Bartman's um, statue that's up in um, South Africa, someone went and poured white paint all over it, almost as a retaliation to oh, the, the Cecil Rhodes statues uh, being taken down. So, yeah. you know, there there is that fear, I guess, from having a black woman be prominent and, you know, prominent and celebrated in communal spaces um, but it needs to happen because we have to start unlearning the narrative that black women should somehow be in the background they should be in the foreground and they should have these plaques to celebrate them I did a previous campaign with Uber um, to talk about the fact that there aren't many plaques um, for women specifically but black women I was focused on and I mentioned for instance that I would love one for Olive Morris I would love one for just to celebrate more just a final comment from me. The most famous statue in the world of a woman was originally designed as a black woman. Do you know who that was? Was that the Statue of Liberty? Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Frederick Bartholdi. So that reduction, that othering of us has been there from time where we are constantly being erased, removed. But this project is going to put that right. Thank you for listening to the Black Plaque Podcast, part of the Nubian Jack Black Plaque Project. Join us for our next episode, where we'll be talking to Kevin Morosky, a creative and founder of We Are Poc, who will be talking to me about his chosen black historical figure, the first openly gay footballer, Justin Fashionu. He must have felt mad, lonely and confused. And I think he probably got to that space and thought, right, I'm great at sport. I've got all of this money and you're still not accepting me. And it's unfortunate. And I feel it's it's a really, really sad story. It's heartbreaking because he also didn't really have family at the time. This podcast is part of the Nubian Jack Black Plaque Project. If you want to find out more about these historic figures, visit blackplaqueproject.com. And if you want to find out more about the trust, visit nubianjack.com. This podcast is produced by Unedited.